We work hard at being healthier. And what we really need is better quality sleep. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed intelligently senses your movements and automatically adjusts your comfort and support on both sides. This is not a bed. It's proven quality sleep. It's the biggest sale of the year where all beds are on sale. Save 50% on the new Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus special financing only for a limited time. To find your local Sleep Number store, go to sleepnumber.com. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details. Hey, everyone. Before we officially start tonight's show, I want to let you know that next Saturday, July 14th, 2017, Lindsay and I are going to be official vendors at BlobFest. BlobFest is a local festival in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, where the movie The Blob was actually filmed. Lindsay and I are going to have a table there, and we're going to be doing live interviews with people in the crowd. So if you're local to that area or you can make it out, you're within an hour's drive, I would love to meet you there. So feel free to come out, check us out, check out BlobFest. I'll see you there. They're staying in the shadows. It's called probing. Make sure things are all clear. Clear for for the rest of the night. You guys hear that? Welcome to the show, everybody. I am your host, Tony Merkel, and I am really glad that you're here. And I'm really glad to be here. I got a great show planned for you tonight. Before we get into that, I'd like to remind you to go ahead and vote for the confessionals on the 12th Annual Podcast Awards. You can go ahead and vote for us at podcastawards.com. The voting is open till July 31st, so please go ahead and vote for us. You'll find us underneath the science and medicine category. If you had an encounter or an experience you'd like to share on the show, go ahead and email me at theconfessionalspodcast at gmail.com or go to the website theconfessionalspodcast.com, hit the connection section, and you can reach me that way as well. Now, tonight's show, I'm bringing on Chad and Alta. They live down in New Orleans, and one night while out and about in town with their one friend, they experienced an abduction. An abduction that has lots of twists and turns, and neither one of those three people have the same story to tell. So sit back and relax, and listen to Chad and Alta recall what they experienced that night in New Orleans. Okay, tonight I have a great pair of guests coming on, Chad and Alta. They contacted me through email a few weeks ago talking about some experiences they had together, and they wanted to come on tonight and talk about that. Chad and Alta, how are you guys? Oh, we're great. Thanks for for allowing us to come in and talk about our new book, Orbduction, and uh, we we really appreciate us. Appreciate you being, letting us be there. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really glad you guys are on. I'm sorry, Alta. Go ahead. And and excuse us, both of us. I think all of a sudden we got nervous, which is unusual. (laughs) (laughs) We're just both really grateful to be here. And we're so appreciative to you and your little family for sharing the time with us. 
Absolutely. This is what we love doing. So uh, you mentioned the book and stuff. So why, why don't you, um, I guess if you want to talk about how the book came about, and I know that's going to tie in with your experience and stuff, but uh, you called it Orbduction. Now, uh, that is what a lot of people call abductions, but you guys call it an Orbduction. Uh, why is that? So Chad's here in the background pointing at me. So I, I will begin this. And as I like to offer, I'm going to do my best to frame this for people and, and kind of build up to this and hand this to Chad to then, you know, go into further detail for everyone. So I happen to be 10 years older than Chad. Um, Chad and I, I feel, and my language has always been consistent. I feel we were arranged, uh, in 1990 of Little Rock, Arkansas, um, this I'm originally of mixed Indian Native American from a reservation area of Arizona. My mother chose to leave that area when I was a baby and my father and his people and, and kind of traveled me around the country. And I've been around, I've been in other places in the world as well. And, uh, uh, but she's always made sure I understood my bloodline. She always, I've always had my native regalia. I've, you know, been a participant most of my life in, in intertribal powwows around the country and what have you. So I've had a fairly strong background in the native world, even though not raised with the tribes due to my mother. Um, she ended up moving to Little Rock, Arkansas and uh, where I happened to meet Chad, but I'm as I said, I've always used the words arranged because this was on a Valentine's Day and uh, it ended up being just the short story on that, just to kind of move through this. Uh, it happened to be on a Valentine's Day and we were a blind date that didn't didn't seem to be able to happen that ended up happening anyway. And it's a very strange story. And then I'll add this for people to ponder is that within 24 hours of Chad and I meeting or being arranged in my mind, we discover that Chad's grandfather who has crossed over at the point I came into the picture, in, he's in spirit. Uh, his, he was very involved in Chad's upbringing as kind of a father figure in his life as well as his father. And uh, the world knew this man as uh, George. Chad knew him as Papa. But in reality, we discover that his first name that's on his gravestone happens to be Alta, which, of course, is my name. And his last name is Duncan, and that happens to be my mother's last name. So when I tell you that I feel very sure we were arranged in 1990, I feel very sure about that. Um, if I may, then I'll move us forward. 1990, we married within a year. We then, I'm moving us now to the year 1995. Chad and I have relocated to the state of Louisiana. We never had lived here before and uh, pretty naive. Let me add that. I'd like to preface that. We're both very naive about living in Louisiana and swamps and what have you. Uh, 1995, at this point, we're living outside of a small community called Hammond, Louisiana, and Hammond happens to be a small college or university town. We're, we're out in the boonies outside of this small community. Uh, I'm about to hand this off to Chad to have him describe to you what I consider our first event 
that didn't allow us to ignore something weird was going on in our lives. So I'll have Chad explain that to you. Yeah, we had, uh, we're going into town uh, for dinner. Uh, like I just said, we kind of lived uh, a few miles out of town. And as we were coming into uh, Hammond, uh, we come around this group of trees and in the in a bend in the road, and uh, there was a big shopping center back, super sized Walmart back behind this group of trees. And when we come around the corner, we look up, and there's this craft, I guess you could say. Just it was huge. It was you know just massive, massive. and. It was very uh, kind of a rectangle shape, but not as wide in the front as it was in the back. Alton and I both kind of look up at the same time and look at this. I kind of look down. She looks at me. Uh, this was kind of on the right-hand side of the, of the road. Uh, and we kind of looked at each other. Alta kind of faces, you know, back forward. I look up again to see, you know, if I saw what I thought I saw. Uh there wasn't any kind of like tra uh, uh, the people or there's no reaction, no, you know, people moving off the road to look or anything like that. Um, it was moving very slow. It had like two or three lights in the front, two or three lights in the back and below cloud level. And, you know, like I said, we both look up at it. She looks at me. I look at her. I look up at it again real fast. And then we focus back on the on the road like, OK, and if we don't look at it, if we don't see it, it won't see us kind of thing. We went on uh, to dinner that night, never spoke about it. Uh, the next morning we woke up and, and heard something about this. It's either on the radio or in the newspaper. I can't remember which. But uh, obviously, other people had had witnessed this and and reported it. Wow! So before we go any further, I wanted to ask you. Uh, you said it was it was a really big craft. I mean, could you give us an idea as to how big, roughly? I mean, are we talking like the size of a car or you know a building? Oh, no, this was like uh, it, it was bigger than the supersized Walmart and the parking lot and combined in the surrounding area it was gotcha it was it, huge. it was like battleship or bigger or it bigger. took up the sky yeah okay i mean i've heard uh another account i think it might have been episode five uh a guy in florida i think in the 80s he had saw a ufo uh that he said he described it the size of a football stadium and uh yeah i mean so that's right Okay, so that's about the same idea of size that you guys experience as well. Right. Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, I, when I hear people describe these different crafts and stuff, you know, I'm always wondering exactly how big. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and like I said, it, it was below cloud level, and it was just it, – It was huge. Yeah. It, 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 yeah, our, our brain exploded. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of when we – woke up saying, okay, all right, something else is out there. I got another question. So you said that this event was the beginning of you guys 
acknowledging with each other that there's something going on. Were there things that are happening beforehand that kind of were leading up to this? Right. We, like I said, from the very beginning for Chad and I, there was no doubt to me that there appeared or felt like a hidden hand, <clears throat> excuse me, involved. Sometimes in, in the very beginning, it seemed to manifest itself in a human form. But, and I don't mean to sound so cryptic. It's just a matter of this is this high strangeness is the term that I borrowed a long time ago that I apply to everything considered paranormal or weird or strange. This high strangeness was from the very beginning with Chad and I. Um, I'll also mention very quickly to not get lost in the past, but I have a very strange or kind of a very mysterious beginnings of my life where I have no childhood memories at all before nine, before the age of nine. My first memory is a, is a highly unusual one. <clears throat> Sorry. And as I said to you, I am 10 years older than Chad. So I'm born in you know the late 50s. And uh, my mother claims that when I'm six months old, which would make it you know, into 57, 58, somewhere in that time frame, this is the period of time she indicated she left my father. She says that we're alone. Her, she's driving. I'm a baby in the passenger of the car. And she said that we're driving across the desert. I have no idea any further than what I'm saying to you now. No more information than what I can offer. She says we're driving across the desert. I have no idea where. And she says it's daytime. And she only would tell this to a very few people in my early life. <clears throat> and uh, when she would say it, it, it embarrassed me so badly that I would disappear out of the room or I would just feel like I was crawling away embarrassment because I thought she was crazy. I had no interest in UFOs. I had no interest in sci-fi. I had no interest in any of this. I had no interest in cryptids and I come from a native background. To me, I'd always heard about it, uh, shape-shifting and what have you and just never gave it really too much thought. It was just the lore. It's not that I didn't believe it. I just didn't really care too much. So with that said to you, she would claim that a, sometimes she would say a small metallic craft or she would use the word UFO or UFO came down out of the sky and stopped her on the highway or stopped her on the road. Now, as I've said this before to folks, my mother has crossed over, so I do not have her physically to engage in any of this conversation now. But I've also stated my mom was considered a self-made woman, uh, very independent. In the community, she was uh, considered a Native American of mixed blood, but certainly was respected. And um, nobody ever challenged her. And so since no one ever challenged her, of course, I was just embarrassed. So I never wanted to discuss any of this. But it would appear, if true what she said, that something was going on, at least in my environment, very early on. Now, I'll have Chad share with you. Uh, his, I find it very unusual little experience in his early childhood, way before this subject was really making the airwaves and in, in notoriety. Chad. Uh, this was in the mid seventies. My, my dad was a rice farmer and we either, he either grew rice or soybean and the field uh, next, yeah, this is the Delta of Arkansas, uh, Riceland, you know, early 70s. 
and uh, right out between us, between our house and, and the barn that we had out there was a, a soybean field. And I remember my dad, and of course I saw him, saw it afterwards, but I remember my dad, my uncle, and my grandfather talking about these three burnt circles out in the middle of the, this field. And they were right in a row, bam, bam, bam. They, they were, you know, 15, 20 foot in diameter each, all about the same size. Uh, but they were just, had never seen anything like it, you know, in all their years of, of being, you know, farmers, crop, growing crops. So that was kind of always weird and always stuck out in my, my, my mind. With no answers. Yeah. How, Chad, how old were you when that happened? I was, well, my, my mom and dad uh, got divorced when I was like seven. So this would have been younger than seven. I would, I would say, you know, around that same time, you know, six, okay. seven years old. And Alta, when that experience happened with you and your mom, she told that story of, you were just a baby, right? Right. She said six months old. Okay. And when the craft stopped the car, is that where the story ends? It, it, right. Okay. So did yeah. she never tell you what happened or there just wasn't nothing else happened? I was, I had no interest in knowing, so it was never offered and I never asked. Gotcha. I'm very distressed about all of that now, but that is, that is my reality. And I have no connection to any family on either my father's side or my mother's side. She raised me pretty much removed from both worlds. And uh, I didn't meet my birth father till I was grown. Uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a good union, if you will. So the fact is, is that I just, you know, I don't have a history, a familiar history or anybody really to reflect back to or fall back on to ask questions of. Lots of mystery. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right, well, walk us into the progression of how things unfold for you guys. Okay, so after we have this, uh, this, whatever, this, uh, I think that was an appropriate description of size, this football field size, stadium size, what have you in the sky. This is in 95. In a short order after this experience, Chad and I make the decision to move to the French Quarter. French Quarter is roughly an hour away. We are, as I mentioned earlier, if I didn't, let me remind all of us how naive we were when we made this decision. You'd have thought I was too old by this time to be naive, but because at this stage now I'm in my mid-30s, uh, approaching you know closer to my latter 30s. Chad's 10 years younger, so you can do the math. And uh, we end up moving to the quarter, not realizing it's a very expensive place to live. And we are not prepared for that. So we end up on the outskirts of the quarter. Now, this is where we may lose a lot of people who have thought they were interested in what's happening with us. Because, again, please remember everybody how naive we were. We ended up in a tiny apartment, a small apartment above what is considered the authentic voodoo temple of the French Quarter. Now, Chad and I knew nothing about voodoo or hoodoo or any of it. 
I'd heard of witchcraft in my life, what have you, but had no interest in any of this. I'm mixed Indian. That's my world. Chad was very appreciative of my native blood and uh, always was very respectful of that side of, of my life and, and interested in it. My mother taught him and that's where our interest was. Chad's raised Southern Baptist. Um, I'm raised of a somewhat traditional religious background. And, but again, nativeness, if you will, is my calling at the time. And so we got no interest in voodoo. It ends up, it's the least expensive place. And for whatever reason, it's like we're supposed to move into this place. Now, again, very naive. We move in. It is, uh, this location is created or built in the 1600s. It's, um, our apartment is on the second floor. Below us is the voodoo temple. I'm sorry, my pooches are barking in the background. Yeah, uh, it's okay. Sorry. Uh, anyhow, there is uh, an apartment next to us on the second floor, temple below, and then a small other little, um, maybe a little shop. I'm not sure. We have a huge courtyard. I understood at the time we moved there that we had the largest courtyard in the French Quarter. We've got a voodoo priestess uh, who lives in a structure uh, separately from the temple, a long structure. At the end of her, and she lives there alone, we understood that the voodoo priest who was from Belize, who I understand was the real deal, whatever that means in their world, he had devoted his life to studying and an herbalist and what have you. He'd moved there from Belize and we understood, you know, created this temple. He meets this woman some years later and teaches her everything he knows. Then he dies before we move there. So we never met him physically. She takes her, her, her expertise, I guess, or what have you. And she's a very smart woman who gets herself connected to the movie companies, all of the big Hollywood production companies Anytime they needed a subject matter that had anything to do with voodoo, hoodoo, or any of it, it seemed like it was made in our backyard. Well, that made us very distressed because not only are we dealing with this, but getting in and out of our apartment was very difficult with movie companies set up all over the place and little movie stars that we were not real thrilled about being connected to. So it just started to become a real eye-opening, like, what the hell are we doing here? But again, circumstances kept us there financially till we could get our feet on the ground and kind of learn the lay of the land. <clears throat> so in the time that we stayed in this apartment, not to bore anybody with the details, we were experiencing, I use the word ghosties, time slip, what appeared to be a Virgin Mary-like apparition uh, what I feel were, I certainly saw them physically, but I don't have really any idea other than what I experienced, uh, females that <clears throat> I felt at, when I'm having the encounter with them that they were slaves, possibly out of the slave quarters that had been turned into small apartments, again, behind us in that courtyard, uh, I felt that they were slaves from that period of time, 16, 1700s three young women and by their appearance and, and their tattered clothing and what have you. So it was just, Chad had an actual encounter with what we understood would have been the 
priest, uh, an apparition of him dealing with Chad on a very direct manner. And uh, so it was just, it was a crazy movie. Others might call it demonic or evil, whatever one wants to call it. We're experiencing it. We finally work our way up financially and start building a decent name for ourselves and end up in a new location. We get out of that environment. We don't look back. And we now are living in another uh, uh, townhouse that's in this kind of the center of the quarter. And that's where it's much more, uh, it's much more um, oh, inviting. It's beautiful. They're expensive, uh, well, well manicured decks and patios and balconies and it's just the kind of stuff you might see if you see documentaries about the French Quarter. We end up living in one of these locations. Now that's high strangeness in itself because it all seemed to be arranged almost again like a hidden hand helping us get into this townhouse. It was fully furnished when we rented it. We rented it for little to nothing, which was hard to get our heads wrapped around and we just saw it as a grateful we were so grateful. Uh, its furnishings look like something out of a castle. There's just no other way to describe it. It was absolutely beautiful. And um, so now we're in this environment, and we're just feeling pretty good with ourselves. Life's coming along. I'm about to turn 40. I start telling Chad and anybody that would hear me that I can't wait to turn 30, I mean 40, because I know something big is going to happen. It's going to be big. And as Chad's saying, life-changing. And so as Chad has often reminded me and others that would hear us, you know, what woman is excited to turn 40? That just didn't make any sense in itself. But I'm very childlike in this manner, and I just can't wait to turn 40. So what ends up happening at 40 is my mother is going to move. We've pre-rented her a mother-in-law cottage in our courtyard. She's going to move from Little Rock, Arkansas, relocate live in our courtyard. We're going to take care of her. She's not in good health. And we're just going to have a life and just take care of each other. Chad adored my mom. My mom felt the same way about him. And so, as I said, we're just going to have a life. And it was not meant to be. My mom went into a coma the day before my birthday. And then on my birthday, we had to catch a plane to get to her. It was on my 40th birthday to the minute I'm born, they pronounced my mother dead. And it was a shock beyond words. There's no words. I'm an only child. I'm her. I'm raised her only child. She was my only family besides Chad. So going through that kind of shock is enough to have silenced me, I felt, for the rest of my life. I, I was falling into such a darkness. We get back to the quarter. We go back to work. I throw myself into work. I'm working very hard. I'm considered as sensitive. Again, I have a very unusual early childhood that seems to be enhanced in my adult life as a sensitive. Um, so we're just trying to get along. We're just trying to make it. Uh, I'm, it's one day at a time for me. And Chad is in a lot of distress also. But he's managing much better than I am in terms of just getting on with it. Uh, three months after my – now this happened in May – so three months later, now we've got us into September of 1997. 
I'm working in this very beautiful shop. The It's a family-owned business. They started in 1929. They've kept it in the family. They've hired a young woman that at the time was 24. Chad was 30, and I had just turned 40, is our ages. She's young, never married, no children. She's tall, slender, long blonde hair, very attractive, very friendly, but nobody's fool. She's not an emotional in the sense I've never, I don't remember ever seeing her cry. She's got a great sense of humor, and but she's a no mess around kind of girl. You know, she's she's a do-gooder, and, the, and I mean that in the highest regard. She's very loyal, and she she knows right and wrong, and she strives for the underdog kind of person. So even at 24, she's very advanced in this way of thinking. They hire her in this shop to, you know, sell sales as well as quasi-manage. So on this particular night, three months after my mother's death, she asked if I wanted to go out in the evening. She asked if we wanted to go out, if I wanted to go out with her and have dinner and drinks in the quarter. I agreed to this. We'd never done this before. I say, let's call Chad. We only lived a couple blocks from the shop, so I know Chad can just walk over and that he's going to want to do this. He's going to want to hang out with us, and we want him to. So he does. He gets dressed and changed, and that's what he does. He meets us at the shop. So now at this point, it's 930 in the evening. We're all three walking out of the shop. She's locking the doors, and we're going to just walk from one end of the French Quarter to the other and be very spontaneous with no plans. So from the minute we step out of the shop, I remember very specifically taking note of the energy of around me felt weird. Now, I don't walk around and talk like that, but it did. So I mentioned it. I'm like, it feels weird out here. Now, that's just weird in itself. So I remember Chad and and our friend taking note of that to some degree also. Like, they weren't arguing with me. Let me say it like that. As we approach the famous Bourbon Street, that's where we're going to start the evening and just walk across. It's about 13 blocks square. From the moment we started our evening, it was off. There were no people around. There were a few, as I call them, stragglers. But we're used to a community that is a 24-7 party. People come from all over the world to be to de- to be debacled and decadent and what have you, as well as amazing. And it's like all of the goodness and the rottenness seems to be all wrapped up in one when, when they all gather in the French Quarter. And so the point is, is there's always people there of good behavior, bad behavior, clubs, restaurants that never close kind of environment. So not on this night, there are, there's few stragglers. We stopped at three different locations across the quarter, and ultimately, each location, there was not a person in there. There'd be one human being looking person that was either the manager or the bartender, but there were no patrons. There was no, if it was a restaurant, there was no wait staff. It was just creepy, but we're not necessarily thinking creepy. We're just thinking, what the hey, where is everybody? This is just weird. So we get across the quarter. Now it's around 11 o'clock is what the three of us remember collectively. We're now on a corner at the end. I'm telling Chad kind of privately away from our friend, I just want to go home. I'm so bored. I just want to go home. 
Chad is somewhat acknowledging an agreement with me because we've tried as hard as we could and it's just not happening. So at this point now, this is, as I said, what the last of the three of us remember as a collective is around 11 o'clock. We've been out since 9.30 to 11. We've stopped at three different locations. It's been a very bizarre night. And now that's the last thing the three of us remember. I am the only one that came out of this experience with what I call memory of the in-between. So that means I have no memory of coming off that street. And I absolutely have no memory of being returned to my home. But that's what happened to me. And it was the next day. It was the next morning. In Chad's case, he has no memory except waking up in our bed, thank goodness, the next morning. Last he remembers being on the street corner and the next he knows it's the next morning and he's waking up in bed. Our friend is missing. She's nowhere in sight the next day in our house. We have no idea. We have no idea. So if I may, for the purpose of the story of the event, this particular event, if, if you're, if this is good for you, Tony, several years after this happened to us in 97, we found somebody uh, to do hypnotic regression on Chad. And uh, I tried to get regression. I paid somebody a lot of money in cash, several hundred dollars to get regression. And this woman was, this person is world renowned. And I just might add, it didn't work with me at all. I spent a lot of money for nothing. In Chad's case, uh, it was a different person. He had a good relationship with this person. And this person drove to our home and they went off into a room behind, you know, a closed door and she tape recorded this session. But Chad has a full account of our last memory of 11 o'clock on that street corner. He has a full-blown account of what appears to be his event, if one believes in regression, it certainly is his truth, could you, and I believe. Could you just pause for one second and de- describe to the audience what regression is? Well, to the best of my understanding, it is uh, a light. It is a light. It's a very f- light form of. Uh, I I think the closest way to describe it would be a form of meditation with guidance. You have somebody who is trained in these studies. Uh, ideally somebody who's licensed, but now it seems like everybody out in the world has jumped on the bandwagon and calls himself a regressionist. So we're only interested in people who have put time, effort, money, and study in this. So it's, I think, like a light form of meditation that's guided. And if you're able to have regression, as Chad was able to, without any real effort, it allowed Chad to recall this night of experience with full memory. He's not under, for instance, here, Chad, because you actually had the experience. Yeah, it's kind of, I guess, a form of hypnotic uh, regression that. as far as uh, uh, recovering uh, lost memory. But how did you feel when it was, could you, did you feel like you were hypnotized or did you feel like you were dreaming? Uh, kind of a dream state, yes. So you recalled what happened after 11 o'clock that night? Is that what happened? That's right. Right. Okay. Go ahead and what, what, were, your, what were your memories? Okay. Sorry, the phone went weird there for a second. Uh, yeah, in my regression, 
what came out was, uh, I, again, I remember everything like Alter remembers throughout the night. You know, not a lot of people, just everything very strange. But what comes out in my regression is we're standing on uh, the stoop in, in, in the middle of the block. Our friend comes over and joins us. I remember seeing this bright light coming from around the corner and like I could see it through the windows of this. Uh, it was like an old shop, probably like an old five and dime or something. So it had these big picture windows and I could remember seeing the reflection coming through and from around the corner. So I get the girl's attention and we walk around the corner. And when we get around the corner, we see this orb of light. And it's probably about 12 foot in diameter. It's about 15 foot off the street. It's about half the half a block down the street. And it just, we see it for just a few seconds. And then it, yeah, it's white, beautiful, clean light. Beautiful. And it just comes towards us and just kind of engulfs us. So this is kind of where we get the orbduction name of our book. Um, my next memory is I'm walking down this corridor. It's kind of gently turning to the right. The walls and the floor and everything, very kind of a gray metallic colored, no seams, no bolts, no rivets or anything like that. Very clean, very fine. There's being that I'm following, a, a little being, and he's probably about three, four foot tall, uh, very kind of a light gray skin tone, bulbous head. He uh, kind of, he, he was kind of dwarfish, you know, he wasn't like the, the grays that they talk about on TV or anything like that. He had substance. He kind of waddled when he walked. He was kind of dwarfish. I uh, only saw him from behind. He was wearing a very tight black uh, uh, one body, one piece body suit. Uh, I could preferably I could see a tall blonde female beside me, but um, you know I didn't turn to see if this was our friend. But it kind of describes the fr our friend that is that was with us that night. My next memory is I'm in this room. And it just seems infinite. It just seems to go on forever. Uh, it's very dark. Now, I could see my immediate, and I could see uh, off at a distance to my left, a tall, blonde female sit, laying on a table, examining table. Uh, she was nude, but I couldn't see, like, yeah, you know, it. she was uh, censored, kind of like they do on TV, you know, with the body parts. And she was censored from head to toe. There were three beings around her, one in each side and one in her head. Uh, They're very tall, like six, seven foot tall. Uh, they were very bug-like, uh, kind of praying manacy-like. Uh, their big almond-shaped eyes, mouth close to their down to their chin. Uh, their skin tone was kind of a pale green, gray color. They were seven, eight foot tall. They were wearing these cloaks almost like a Jesuit priest or like a, a, a grim reaper without the hood. Uh, their arms are kind of 
crook, kind of almost like a praying mantis. Uh, the person on the table never seemed to be like in distress or in pain or anything like that. Uh, I focus my attention back to my right, and there's this blue being, and as far as his body, he looks a lot like the grays that you see on TV, big bulbous head, almond-shaped eyes, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, but his presence and his aura, he was just this bright, electric, live, just yummy blue, and his 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 presence was like that of like a shaman slash professor slash scientist slash healer just all of this combined and he goes over and he picks up this box and uh, he has it in his uh, right hand he takes his left hand and sticks it into the side of the box and when he pulls his hand out he has this substance kind of floating above his hand free floating above his hand and it looked kind of like that slime stuff that kids play with, uh, but it was, you know, it was contained. It was probably about the size of like a quarter or a half dollar. Uh, it's kind of undulating around and moving around. It's blue, the same color blue that he was. It had little metal kind of glittery flakes floating throughout it. And he takes his right hand. I don't even remember him setting the box down, but he, t he takes his right hand. And now he's only got, he only has four digits. He takes his right hand and he puts two up like a, almost like a peace sign, his two middle fingers up and the, his two outer fingers fold in. Almost kind of what you see like uh, depictions of Jesus or the saint or Buddha or something like that kind of. And he does this kind of, you know, right above his hand and in, in front of this this substance that's floating above it. And when he does that, this this substance starts spinning. And the faster it spun, the blueness and the the uh, glittery kind of metal flakes that were inside it kind of dissipate out of it and kind of rotating and or orbiting around it, you know. And it starts slowing down and it had kind of turned into this double pointed crystal kind of pyramid shape crystal, very clean, very clear. I remember thinking to him, you know, why are you showing this to me? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an engineer. This is something very important. And he told me, and this was again, all mental, all telepathically, I guess. And he told me that I will know in time or when it's time. My next memory is I'm in another room. There's only three walls. There's two that are very straight, one that's kind of concaved. And uh, again, all the walls were very metallic, smooth, no rivets, no bolts, no seams. You know, everything seemed to mesh together. There was this overstuffed leather chair in the middle of this room. And I remember thinking to myself how out of place it looks and it looks comfortable, but it's not how I knew that or how that came up with that. I'm not sure how I focused my attention on the wall. That's kind of concave. 
and I walked a little closer to it. What I thought was this solid, you know, metal substance, this wall, I could see it, it wasn't solid. I could see through it, you know, like a one big window. And it was huge. You know, it was like 15 foot long and, you know, 10 foot high. You know, it had high ceilings. And I'm kind of, I, I, I look and I can see like stars and galaxy. It's like, you know, I'm out amongst the stars. And I'm kind of sitting there in awe. And all of a sudden, uh, from my left comes this little craft. And it shoots past, and it gets uh, you know, nine, ten foot past me, and it stops, and it comes back, and it's just kind of hovering outside this wall, this window wall, and it's probably about three foot long, about two foot wide, kind of football or rugby shape ball uh, shape. Uh, it had little antennas and wires and metal things shifting around. It had little lights blinking throughout all over it. I could feel intelligence coming out of it. Uh, it sat there for a few seconds, 30 seconds, probably at the most. And it just shot back off into the, um, directioning it was going. And my next memory is waking up in bed the next morning. Wow. That's incredibly vivid, a vivid memory. Yeah. My most basic question I could ask you right now is when you were recalling these memories, did you ha have a sense of fear in the midst of these memories or were you calm and kind of in a different state of mind? Yeah, I, I was very calm. Uh, I, I had no anxiety, no, no fear, no, I wasn't scared or anger from, you know, not knowing how I got there or where I was. Uh, I never felt any pain or anything like that. Um, now when I was with this blue being, you know, it was exciting. You know, I, I, I felt just like honored and, you know, happy to be with him. But again, I was never scared. Never, never, I've never felt any kind of negativity or even with the tall beings that were around the, the person laying on the on the examining table, they they'd never felt menacing or anything like that. So, I, and and I've heard horror, horror stories about you know bad things happening, but I never felt like I had any kind of bad or negative experience. Okay, well, when it comes to the other person that you remember being there, you know the natural connection is it's that we would want to think that it's your friend. Do you have any reason, like definitive proof or reason to think that it's either your friend or not your friend, or you just absolutely, you're just not sure? I'm not sure. I have no idea. Okay. Now, Alta doesn't remember any of this kind of stuff, right? And as far as you remember, you don't ever remember seeing her in these memories. Correct. Yeah, I never, no. Okay. Okay, so you guys have this this time slip where it's just it's gone and you guys wake up at your house, you don't know where your friend is, and at some point you go through this process to remember these 
these memories. Does have you ever been able to connect with your friend from that night to talk about your memories and try to compare stories if she remembers anything? Right. So just kind of qualifying what, what was just said, uh, Chad woke up. I came to, it is very different. That's a very different experience because I came to sitting up and have an unknown. People call these implants. I've never used that language. Everybody's going to say whatever they're going to say. I get that. So I've, I've always been consistent. I call this object in my upper arm an unknown. Uh, I seem to be the only one out of the three of us that not only had memory, I, I'm the only one that had memory of in between and, and an unknown in my arm. Chad has no memory. We got that regression done. So he's just described to you his understanding of that regression. Our friend, uh, it took two days before she and I reconnected. So for two days, Chad and I, as I say, hunkered down in our townhouse, terrified. We're, we're terrified. Sure. We do not know what to do. And I might add, not for the sake of being cryptid or trying to sell a book, because that is our least concern. We have created this little book, and we're very interested in the world seeing it, if anyone is interested. But I will add that there's a great there's a great deal of little story in the beginning of that book that we've never been public about over the radio that certainly I believe will help people understand even deeper why Chad and I were so afraid about where is our friend and what to do about it. So we chose to just stay quiet and beg her. We prayed like we never prayed before. And I'm talking about just telling the heavens to have her surface, to call us, to come by, to something. This is prior cell phones. So, again, we're talking 1997. She doesn't make contact. So we've got two days uh, where I'm off work. Chad happens to be home also. And we just stay very close to the house. I see her two days later at our job. She's pretty calm. She's pretty darn calm. Now, I am a controlled hysteria inside, maybe because I'm older, what we'd already been through. I don't know. But she's she's calm. And she made it real clear to me. Now, keep in mind, again, she's 24 at the time. I'm 40. That she knows something happened to us. And then she proceeds to tell me what happened to her. And what happened to her has nothing to do with my memory or what Chad just described to you with him. We're, we're all experiencing something what appears to be is very different. So all out of one way. Could you, before we go any further, uh, rewind a little bit and share what your memories are from that night? Sure. So in my case, last moment is on that stoop, just as we've described to you, 11-ish. My next knowing is I'm now standing on the edge of a crater. It's huge. This crater is a big crater and deep. And it is, uh, but it's not as deep as I would have expected. I don't know how to describe that. It is, It. my environment looks exactly like I'm standing in the middle of 
a black and white old movie of the so-called landings on the moon. That's what it looks like I'm standing in the middle of. There's no color other than what a black and white movie will offer you, with the exception of some bright white and some metallic. But that's it as far as color. I'm looking down in that crater, and at the bottom of the crater, there's no activity. I see no movement of any kind. There appears to be a rectangular, structured, I thought at the time, metallic building or hangar or something of that nature, warehouse. Uh, I'm not so sure anymore. I, I'm very honest to admit, I'm not quite sure what that metallic was. But what I do know is there was no movement down there, nothing at all. It, that's all that I saw. And then around the perimeter of this crater were little white orbs of light. Now, when I say little, they weren't like softball size. They were larger than that, more like watermelon size or double watermelon, big watermelon, just to try to give a comparison. These orbs of light around the perimeter and that's all I can do is say what it felt like to me. They felt like they had intelligence. Now, I'm not standing and talking to them, but I am taking this in, and it's the emotion. It's the feeling I'm getting. As I'm starting to just really – now, I'm not in shock. I'm more in curiosity. None of this makes any sense. I realize how, how crazy we sound, but we are not crazy, I assure you. So – as I'm taking this in, I'm aware all of a sudden that there's something behind me. I don't completely turn around. I just somewhat semi-pivot around to the right. And behind me, several feet, are what appear to be human-looking people. I didn't count them, but it, I'm thinking at least – I know at least two, I want to say three – could have been four, but I'm thinking three, which makes me sound even crazier because why aren't I counting and why aren't I running over to them? They're in a, what I call a dog pile. They're, they're sporadically lying on top of each other. They're all dressed. They seem to be of different ages, both male and female. And again, in the very quick time I'm looking at this, I don't see any distress. I, I get more of a sense of it being almost as if them being, what is that? I can't think of the term of being kind of in an artificial uh, state of, I don't know, uh, unconsciousness. Like but comatosis? Again, right, or something of that nature. I just got no sense of anybody being hurt or what have you. Now, this is all happening very quickly. I now, as I'm, you'd think I'd turn around and, as I said, run to them, because Chad and I are very loving people. We are lovers and not fighters. And so we're very interested in people's well-being. And so anyhow, this what we're describing to me makes us just sound like we're heartless. But all of a sudden, I'm aware that there is something right next to me now on the edge of that crater. Well, I'm correct because now I turn back and right next to me where it's, we're touching practically is 
what appears to be a female that is over six feet tall. I'm about five, five. My head has to go back to look up at her. And as I've stayed as consistent as I know how to be, she is, I didn't know this at the time until I have this experience, but in this experience, she is my idea of perfection, not only physically, but internally. There's an energy about her and coming out of her. I don't see this. This is all emotion, all feeling. But I don't know who she is. I don't care who she is. I feel I'm home. That's the word that kept coming to me is I'm home. And she's, I belong here with her. I'm so in awe of her presence. She's got a bodysuit on. She's over six feet tall. She's got long blonde hair. And I'd be honest with you, I don't even remember the color of her eyes. I think they're I think they're dark, but I'm not even positive of that because I'm more caught in the emotion of what I'm experiencing. Um, I clearly remember feeling as if I'm like a little kid, like a child or a puppy with my tail wagging. That's the kind of emotion I'm experiencing. She, uh, she and I just, we never move. We stay in that position, but now I'm more forward, turn more forward again. And rather than looking down in the crater, my head has moved back now and I'm looking up into the sky. It's a pitch black sky around me, but I'm taking in what appear to be just the most beautiful stars I can remember seeing in a long time. They're, they're so beautiful and I've been teased badly about this statement, but they were like diamonds. So it, they were just glistening. And I remember in that moment, remembering being in the desert somewhat throughout my life and the desert sky in a night, on a perfect night, there's nothing more beautiful. So that's kind of the emotion I'm going through. And I'm so joyous because I'm with her. I don't know who her is, but that's what I'm going through. That's, the, that's what I'm experiencing. As I'm looking up at the sky and those beautiful stars, she appears to be looking up with me. All of a sudden, one of them moved out of place and, and did a bit of a dance kind of across the sky. And then others joined in. In the moment that those stars became uh, movement rather than transfixed, I went from a state of ecstasy, that's the only word I know how to call it, to a state of terror, just just that quick. My heart was racing instantly. I felt like it was going to literally, as they say, pound out of my chest. I was so afraid because if there is such a thing as logic in the middle of this experience, it kicked in and I know those stars can't do that. Something is horribly wrong. And so in that very moment that I shifted in emotion, she telepathically spoke to me in a tone that is not, I, I can't find words for in its form and beauty, its sound. Uh, and she called me by name, Alta. And again, this is all telepathic. And she said, Alta, don't be afraid. They're just scanning you. And as soon as she said that to me um, and finished that statement, it's the next morning and my eyes are popping open and I'm sitting up in my living room. Wow. Hearing Chad share his memories and hearing you share, share yours, 
they're so detailed and they're so different. The people that you saw, I think you described it as they were they were uh, laying almost. Were they on top of each other? Right. Okay. Like you know, like kids will. Have you ever do you do you understand when I'm using the term like a dog pile? Yeah, where you just, just kind of piled up on top of each other. Right. Right. Did they? I mean, when you're there, did you get the sense that they were at peace as well? I had more of a sense of, again, this is very quick while this is happening, but the sense I remember is suspended animation. That's the word I was looking for. Okay. Suspended animation. And this is just a side little detail that I want to ask. You described this person or this being that was next to you uh, wearing a bodysuit. Have you ever, you and Chad together, described the bodysuits that you each saw and to see if they were similar types of bodysuits? In my case, I'm not really, I, I don't, all that I know is it, it, in listening to Chad over the years describe his experience, he describes uh, a bodysuit or he'll describe like a skin diving kind of suit. And that's what I remember on her in that regards, that it was full fit from neck down. I don't remember her hands. In all honesty, I this is where it just sounds so crazy. I didn't care. I didn't care to ask her anything. I didn't have any questions. I had no consciousness of Chad. I had no consciousness of the life I had just been removed from. I'm a child in awe. I'm in a child state of curiosity and awe. Yeah, I mean, I, I can totally gather that from your description because it, it seems like it seems like one of those dreams that you have where there's so much that happens inside the dream, yet you have no idea what any of it means. Uh, is that kind of like how you feel when you kind of look back at this? You, you kind of just you look back at this whole thing and you, you remember what happened, but the meaning behind of what happened to you guys, uh, is, have, have you ever come across an idea that kind of describes, you know, what you think was happening that night? I'm consistent and have been all these years we've been public and, and, and my words are consistent with, I am clueless. I have no idea. There, are, I have no answers, and of course, it frustrates people tremendously who have all their opinions about what we're sharing. But you know, that's that is my answer: is that I have no idea. I have yeah. no idea. Because, all right. So, rewinding a little bit here to the beginning of your night before this happened, you guys are walking around. There's nobody around, which is really weird. And there's a few people, right? Few and, people, right? So there's a few people, but it's it's a lot less than normal. It's much quieter. Do it's you, the twilight zone. Yeah. It, do you think at at what point in time in this time frame do you think things started happening to you guys? Do you think it happened earlier on, where like right, maybe, the maybe you we entered, walked out of the shop? Oh, I'm okay. sorry. No, I was just going to say exactly like when you walked out of the shop, was it almost like you were entering into a, a another? I th- I feel like dimension is the wrong word, but just like a different state of time. I didn't take note of it that way at the moment. I just remember it felt it felt off. It felt, and th- and that's the most difficult thing to try to find words for. 
without ever experiencing it yourself, it, it just was, it was just different. The energy felt different, but I, I've been, we've been asked this many times and, and I'm, we're so appreciative of the questions, even the consistency of the question, because I've only been able to recently state that I don't remember ever feeling like I'd stepped through a portal, gone through a dimension, anything like that. It's just that everything that was our normal was not that night, such as a location that Chad and I had visited frequently. Um, we were off during the week, so that was our weekend, if you will. We found a, a what we considered a fabulous kind of small uh, sake bar that was above a wonderful Thai restaurant. And so we would go there on Tuesdays uh, and, and Chad loves seafood and they had a wonderful band that would play. And so this was very common and, and not common, but when we did go out, this is, we would end up in that direction. Well, the point is, is that we'd frequented it enough to know it's, it's routine. It never shut its door. The door was always open. You had to go up some stairs above this restaurant. The door was always open. You walked in. It looked like you were in Morocco. The seating was on, you know, these beautiful cushions and so on. It was just a very interesting environment. But the point is, door never shut, nor had we ever been asked for a cover charge, ever. Well, on this night, the door is shut with a sign asking for a cover charge. Well, we'd already gotten so frustrated by the time we got there because that was our last, one of our, almost our last location. And everything else had been so weird up until then that we just, in a huff, the three of us on this staircase, just pivoted right on the steps. And in this huffy tone, as we march ourselves down the stairs, well, we've never had to do this before. We're not doing it now, kind of language. And back out on the street we went to end up in our last location for then that to be our last memory. It seems, it just seems to me like when you left the shop, something had like had happened where you're entering into like a whole different new reality or something. That That's just the way my mind draws it up. Maybe it's because I don't have any other experiences or knowledge to describe it any other way, but it just feels like you guys leaving that shop, I, I wouldn't even go as far as saying a portal. Just, it feels like that's when it all started and though you didn't really know what was going on it feels like to me that's when it all happened and and all the little weird things that just were off mm -hmm. that entire right. uh walk that you guys had and up right. until you saw the orb come around the 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 corner and i think you said the orb is what 12 feet wide or something like that i mean it was right. it was very I, big yeah it was huge it was i mean compared to like the the little ones that you see in like TV you know, shows. Photos, of, photos of you know the yeah so it seems to me like that night's events were leading up to that point but i don't know it feels like things were almost directing you up to that point you know where you weren't able to go into this place you guys often frequent because there was a cover charge and that's not the way things work around here we're not doing that so it was like it was like putting up something. I feel like it was something was putting up roadblocks for you guys to direct you into a certain uh, path for that evening, for that experience to even happen. 
uh, I don't know. It's just, you know, I'm just speculating here uh, out loud, but. Um, we like it. Okay. Alta, you mentioned something earlier and uh, we have to get into it. Um, people are going to want to know. You mentioned about the implant. And now I have seen the X-ray images of the implant, uh, and with if if it's okay with you, I could post it on the website with your show. If not, that's fine too. Just let me know either way. Uh, but I I have personally seen the X-rays. Uh, you have an implant. Do you remember that point of receiving an implant? And if not, if so, or if not, either way, at what point did you discover? the fact that you really do have an implant in you and how'd you go about going to the doctor to get these x-rays and things like that? Right. So I discover this unknown immediately when I come to the next morning, as I mentioned, I'm rubbing my arms. I go through this experience of feeling something in my upper arm. I go in the bathroom and get a pair of tweezers I pull something out of my arm. That's very, very tiny, but I could see it with the naked eye. It came out of my arm as a solid, and it was it was like a originally like a cactus sticker. It, what was so crazy that on top of crazy is there was no pain. I had no pain in my arm. That made no sense to me how I can have a sticker or a thorn, a tiny thorn in my arm, and there be no pain. So I pull this out. It left a teeny tiny pinhole remaining with a lump underneath it. Um, this this is so creepy to repeat this and and I'm sorry also absolutely if you care to certainly show those x-rays I, I realize I personally think that those x-rays look extremely mundane compared to what I've been through with this object so I'm just grateful to have the x-rays where there is something showing there sure. um, so this unknown I go through, you know, this craziness in the bathroom with this, and I realize that uh, I've got this lump in my arm. I <clears throat> go to Chad. Uh, Chad's now awaking, coming, getting out of bed, walking towards me. We both realize very quickly that neither one of us can explain the night before, with the exception of me saying to him, I have this crazy memory, and oh my, Chad, I got something in my arm, kind of, what have you. Uh, Chad is now at this point walking around me as I show him this place in my arm. He walks around me and he discovers that I have what appear to be very strange handprints on my arms, on both my arms that are uh, just creepy as all get out to repeat. I'll have Chad describe what he saw. Yeah, there, there's only like four digits and they're very long fingerprints almost uh bruising uh i said they walk, walk they, they wrap all the way around her arm they're on both sides as if somebody was either holding her from behind or maybe two people or two Something's beings <laughs> holding her from each side but yeah the light bruising they didn't last very long again this was before you know cell phones and you know yeah, cameras we didn't care Always, anything about any of yeah, that. Yeah, we never no. took pictures or anything, but you know, they were you know, very light bruised and again didn't last for, you know, but a day or so. Okay. So 
that becomes a reality. And uh, I, in the beginning of all of this, was not handling anything well. And there was nowhere to turn. And there was no idea what to do about any of this. Our friend decided she was going to go silent on all of this. She had no interest in pursuing any of it. And so I'm kind of left on my own with this object. Like, oh, man, you know, it was just like it was. I'm still going through trauma of the death of my mom. So anyhow, we'll fast forward several years later. Chad and I have left New Orleans, ended up in Alabama where his father had a business. Chad was working for his dad. Now we're in about 2001. I find a book at a bookstore when they still had those. And this book was written by a medical doctor who happened to be a podiatrist, but he was a medical doctor. He has now passed on in the last year or so. But I will say this to the best of my knowledge, and I don't know anybody who knows much more about this than I do because I've devoted my whole everything to trying to understand. He seemed to be, as I say, the only game in town, which made me real crazy to think one human being had this kind of power, which was removing these objects, these what are commonly called implants. What was his name? He, his name is Dr. Roger Lear. Roger Lear. And he wrote Right. He wrote a book called Alien in the Scalpel. When I saw that title, I'm like, this is a joke. This has got to be a joke. Oh, my. Oh, my. You know, it's like this is almost making this real. Now, I know I got this object. I got something in my upper arm. But now I got a doctor who's written a book out of California and I'm in Alabama and it's all about this. So I get that little book. I make contact with this doctor almost immediately in the sense of email. Now, computers are brand new to me in 2001. I still don't know what I'm doing with one, so I'm very poor with this. But I manage, where there's a will, there's a way, to make contact with him. We had a couple very brief emails. He made it clear to me, in order to talk to me any further, I had to get an x-ray and get it sent to him. I went through, Chad and I both went through unbelievable craziness, a, a, a form of, I'm just being very careful with my language. We were put through absolute craziness by humans to get that x-ray. I got the x-ray, got it sent to the doctor long distance. He shot me off a message. He got it. He then orders me to get a second x-ray. I tell him we have been through unbelievable craziness. Can you give me further guidance? He said, if you don't get that x-ray in a very uh, direct manner, we'll forget this conversation ever happened. I then put Chad and I through absolute more craziness and we got that second x-ray. By the time we got the second x-ray, this doctor had made his mind up. He didn't want to deal with us anymore. So he just didn't deal with us anymore. So what I ended up getting out of this whole experience was, thank the heavens, that x-ray. The objects, I'd like to invite for anybody who's interested in looking at anything on their own, there's a gentleman that's quite got quite a a name for himself now. Uh, He started off in life as, I believe, an author. He's a published author, and several of his books have been turned into movies, and he's of the horror genre. 
Now, that's never been an interest of mine. I'm not into horror. I'm not into sci-fi, what have you. But this gentleman, his name is Whitley Strieber. So Whitley Strieber, I understand, is an experiencer. He is the first, to the best of our knowledge, who kind of turned the world on its ears when he came out with a book called, is it Communion? I think it's called Communion. And it is the first, my understanding, on his cover of the book, the first uh, acknowledgement to what they now commonly call a gray. that's becoming real common language. Well, he's the first to put one on the cover of a book. So this started to do things worldwide with people as in waking them up. And I don't know, good, bad, indifferent, but all of a sudden hundreds, thousands of people are coming forward claiming they're having these experiences with these gray beings. So, well, this gentleman, the reason I bring him up is that he has a video online on YouTube that he's allowed to stay online where he has an unknown an implant in his, the area of his ear. He has now he's built a big name for himself. He's quite famous. So he's got all the contacts out there of people who can help him. He has a medical doctor and somebody I have no idea who this is or how to find this doctor. Uh, he allows this to be videotaped with this doctor doing surgery on this ear to remove this implant. You will see if you'll look at that video that the implant won't allow itself to be removed meaning the implant moves. So besides them being freaked out, they just decide to leave it right where it is. And to this day, I think in his case, it's been over 20 years or 30 years that he's had this object. He still to this day has the object because he chose as I've chose to just leave it and not try. There is everybody who calls these uh, tags. I've, find personal offense with. But again, I understand people's limitations in the way they think and what have you. And again, there are no answers. What I can tell you is that you can see on video, and this is not photoshopped, that this object is not choosing to be removed. And so they, you know, sewed him back up. And to this day, that object is still there. I've been through a great deal of some of the same kind of craziness. So what I can also tell you, and for people who are interested in exploring that any further, to get past the point of them being just tags, is that there's a gentleman that was involved with Dr. Lear. He's also a doctor, but I believe his is in nuclear physicist kind of language. He's a scientist who I think he might even be a theoretical physicist. His name is Dr. Robert Kuntz. I believe it's K-O-O-N-T-Z. Now, I've I've referred this to other folks and I've had comments come back at me that, you know, this guy's a kook and what have you. I did as much exploring as I could in investigating him. And, you know, his paperwork and so on certainly is was good enough for me. He, he uses language I can't even repeat in terms of uh, physicist language. This is a very intelligent man, if you will. He has studied several of these implants. And he was good enough and probably foolish enough to post his findings online. And he has probably no longer got employment. I know he's being called a kook and what have you, because Dr. Lear has now died since this has all come out. 
So Dr. Lear is no longer physically here, but I believe Dr. Kuntz is still alive. And the one thing I will say to you is he uses a lot of science language in in what he identifies the components of these objects, or at least some of them that they've studied. He also indicates that his understanding as a scientist says that whoever or whatever responsible for these objects, these implants, he guesstimates is at least 100 million years in advance of humans. Now, that's all I had to see. Because I already understand the craziness of all of this, because I'm living it. And I just suggest that if there's any truth to any of that, I suggest nobody has any idea what's really going on here. Yeah. No, I I think there's so many different ideas that go on out there as far as this stuff goes. I don't really think anybody's truly got it all pegged down. Now, I find this very fascinating i don't know why maybe i'm just overreacting but uh roger lear i believe was the doctor that uh la marzulli was using for people that's right yeah and i had la marzulli on the show and he talked briefly i think about his experiences with dr lear and he talks about how they were removing an implant and the implant that was there it seemed to just disappear. Like it, they couldn't find it once the person was on the operating table for a long while. And then all of a sudden it just appeared again and they were act- actually able to extract this implant. Uh, and I also had another gentleman on the show, uh, Jim Wilhelmson, who actually was examined by Dr. Lear right before Dr. Lear passed away. Jim has an implant in himself as well. And he, he has it in his body right now. And, He's just like, whatever, it's there. And, you know, it. I guess it hasn't done him any harm to this point. Uh, and he, he, Jim went into telling his thoughts on um, his, uh, what he calls abduction. And uh, his was very peaceful, like you described. Um, he, he describes going through a series of mental tests. Uh, they were, they were trying to, um, I guess, test his mental fortitude. And uh, the way he describes it is he didn't cut it because they eventually dispatched of him and they stopped coming around. But I think he said between the ages of five and 12 or something like that, it was consistently being abducted by these uh, these uh, creatures. Um, so I just find that it fascinating that this all ties together. You know, these different people that I've talked to on the show, and now you're the third person who has had uh, interactions with Dr. Lear now you're the first person that brought up Robert Kuntz and that's somebody who I've never heard of before. And so I'm very interested to see where Robert Kuntz is today. You know, uh, do you have any idea? Oh no, sorry. I, I was just left on my own in Alabama and in my state of being by myself and feeling like I'd been kind of thrown out to the wolves. I just started Googling and, because that's all that I understand and and in search and somehow or other was led to discover this name. I explored as far this was many years ago. I explored as far as I could and and I saw that he had posted fi- some findings of implants that they had claimed that they had removed. And I, as I said to you, what what happened to me? Because I never intended to be public and I never intended to have to prove anything. I know what we've experienced and I know what we don't know. 
and we seem neither one of us know anything but we hear everybody else seems to know something so we're always trying to stay open to get this kind of guidance or be open to it uh but at the point that i discovered kuntz putting online this 100 million year in advance of human i just said well if there's any truth to any of that this is a lost cause on my part to try to understand further. That doesn't mean I've ever stopped, and I certainly have not. But I, I, once Dr. Lear died, it felt like everything. And to the best of my understanding, so much of it has stopped in terms of interest or doing anything about it or what have you. One thing that was always a real issue for me and continues to be an issue is if you involved yourself with Dr. Lear, and uh, allowed yourself to have these objects removed, you had to give them away. They, they took responsibility of these objects, and you no longer had a connection with them. And so that was always an issue to me. Chad and I were very concerned, of course, in the beginning, with if I get this cut out of me, will I die? And then my biggest thought was always, what say whatever is responsible for this doesn't put me through this again to get it put back. Well, I then went on to have another experience. Uh, I was with Chad in Alabama. We're in bed asleep. And then all of a sudden I'm now standing in my backyard and I had a full blown experience. And at the end of that experience, I have an explosion of light in my wrist and as I've described it, it was like a light bomb went off in my wrist. There was no pain at all. It was just crazy. Just, again, trying to describe this. So that's my last memory. And then the next thing I know, I'm waking up the next morning in bed with Chad. I wake him up. I tell him what I've just been through or what I know I've been through that I'm not dreaming. And I'm not a sleepwalker. And I say to him that I feel very sure that there's another unknown in my wrist. Well, he's kind. He says, well, that's kind of nice. You know, let's go back to sleep. Because you can't see anything. There's nothing to see with the naked eye. It took about a year or so after that happened to me for a friend who was an ultrasound tech who had a small ultrasound machine uh, that she carried with her. She was a traveling ultrasound tech. She... I know she did this for the purpose of seeing whether I was crazy or not, but she was kind enough to come by my home with that machine, caught me completely off guard. I had no idea she was even in my neighborhood. She lived an hour and a half away from us, so I was completely caught off guard, but I was extremely grateful because I'm going to prove this now to myself. I either am crazy or there's something really there. And as it turns out, as she, as she scanned my wrist with that machine, we both understood at that moment there's something in my wrist as well. But what's in my wrist won't take an x-ray. So they seem to be very different. There's, I just feel there's no understanding at this point. Wow. Now, you said it won't take an x-ray. So have you tried having an x-ray or just the ultrasound? No, I... I I went through all kinds of insanity to get those first x-rays. It's almost like I didn't trust them. So several years later, I found another doctor 
that was willing to see me, understanding what I was coming there for. She was open to this. She x-rayed the first object, and those are the pictures you see, those x-rays. I told her I knew I had another object in my wrist. She was open to this. She x-rayed, and it absolutely shows nothing. So when I say it doesn't x-ray, it doesn't x-ray. But let me also back up, if I might. I was just trying to, for time's sake and not to bore you, I, I'll go back now and mention when I went through the first, when Chad and I went through the first experience of getting these x-rays of the first object, the first object chose to not take a picture the first two times. It didn't allow a picture of itself till the third time. By the time that picture was actually taken, the medical doctor and his skeleton staff that were on duty doing this wanted me gone. Now, they invited us to come so that he could see for himself, was I, was I really somebody who has had this experience and have this object? We drove two hours to his office. By the time this fiasco was over, this doctor wanted me gone. He never wanted to see me again. And not because we're crazy, not polite. He wouldn't even take my money for the x-ray. They just, they gave me the x-ray. I'm very grateful, but they got us gone. When Dr. Lear asked for that second x-ray, I told Chad, we've got to go back to this doctor. Chad said he knew that wasn't a good idea because this doctor had made it clear he was afraid. He did not want to see us again. I tell Chad, now I'm admitting my bad behavior. I don't act this way any longer, nor would I ever do this again. But I tell Chad, Chad, you're going to call the doctor's office. You're going to make an appointment and we're going back there. Chad finally agrees. He calls the doctor's office and whoever answers the doctor's phone makes it clear to Chad that the doctor is out of the country. Now I move into a state of rage. I'm raging inside. I'm so offended and I'm hurt. I'm lost and I'm raging. I tell Chad, we're going to go back and we're going to do a peaceful Indian sit-in. But I'm going to sit there until that doctor sees me. I don't care how long it takes. He doesn't want to do this. He knows I mean it. We've got a two-hour drive to go back. We contact the woman that lives an hour and a half away herself who originally arranged this meeting with this doctor. She was an affiliate with MUFON, people who claim to be all involved in the understanding of this. She's offended. She's angry because this doctor is hiding. She says she'll meet us there. The three of us show up and the doctor hides for eight hours. When he finally looks at me, he's sending signals out through the glass at me that are of hatred. Now, he's angry because I'm not leaving. Now, again, I'll never do anything like this again. But when I finally got in to get that second x-ray, via Dr. Roger Lear's request, the object wouldn't take a picture again. This doctor is thrilled. He comes bouncing into the exam room where Chad and I and this woman are waiting now. And he won't even address me. He only speaks to the woman. He doesn't even address Chad, my husband. I'm sitting on an exam table. He's happy. He indicates, oh, it's over. This is over. There's nothing there. Well, this object in my upper arm is now sticking out in my arm. It looks like a big bug bite. I say to the doctor, well, excuse me then, sir. What is this? And I'm pointing at this. And he turns around. He's several feet away from me. And he begins to get very angry again. 
because he can see this sticking out in my arm. He knows this isn't over. Did you ever hear such insanity? I mean, what I'm repeating to you is what we have been put through. It finally allowed a picture. They took $100 from me, gave me that x-ray. And in the meantime, Dr. Lear decided he didn't want to work with us. So it was absolute insanity. But I have those x-rays. The doctor that was giving you the x-rays, I just get this feeling that he was probably operating out of a lot of fear. And people, you know, they react to fear in certain ways and stuff. And for whatever reason, his defense mechanism to his fear is to be angry at the person. Uh, Right. And Lucky me. (laughs) Yeah. So Dr. Lear says he doesn't want to work with you. Why? Did he ever tell you why? Well, I will admit to you what we've never said ever before. You can cut this out if you choose because we've never admitted this publicly. Chad and I are going to attend our first UFO conference in Tennessee. We lived in Alabama. We're so excited because Dr. Lear is to be a head keynote speaker there. That means a paid position. There's also another gentleman that's going to attend this conference that's gotten quite famous. The movie has been made about him. He, his name is Travis Walton. The movie is Fire in the Sky. Travis Walton happened to be taken, abducted, removed, whatever the case was in his case, from an area in the woods in the mountains of Arizona that I had inherited property at. I knew this about Walton. And so Chad and I were very excited to go meet him in person. I also, I don't know his whole story, but what I also learned is that he was with, he indicates that he was with beings that looked humanoid also. And if I'm not mistaken, there was a blonde in the picture. Well, that's who I'm with. So of course I've got to talk to him. Well, I'm so foolish because I'm just so naive. So Chad and I are so excited. We're going to hand deliver that second x-ray to Dr. Lear at that conference. So I'm very nervous to repeat this because it's so hard to admit this publicly. Dr. Lear, Chad's trying to calm me. Dr. Lear, when I tell him we are so excited, we're going to meet him at this conference and give him this x-ray, he sends me an email and he makes it very clear to me that he has been dropped from the speaker's podium. Whoever's putting this conference on has dropped him. He's angry. He's now instructed me to raise a boycott against this conference. I'm in shock. I send back a message to Dr. Lear. Dr. Lear, we are so sorry to hear this. I'm so sorry, but I'm a little nobody who knows no one. I could be of no help to you here. But we can't wait to meet you. Back to my little childlike state again, my tail wagon. And, uh... He went silent to us from that moment on. Wow. That's a shame. That's a real shame. Right. Yeah, we certainly felt this way. And because I was only interested in ever dealing with whatever the best was out there, uh, you know, that was always only our interest. So it was a shame for us in this regards. But I certainly respect his work, what he has presented prior to his death. Um, I've tried to tell the world about him for folks who hadn't ever heard of him. 
and the fact that, you know, so much has been published and, and videos and what have you that he's been connected to. So it seems like the circumstances around uh, your encounter involving the, well, your encounter with him leading up to the conference and how that all ended with him in the conference. It seems like there was backlash on your relationship with him. And that's, that's just not fair, you know? Uh, it, it was just a little ego involved and, you know, probably if he would have continued living, you know, we could have probably gotten over that, but you know, it, uh, yeah, it was, it was a shame and, and, you know, it, it was very difficult because, you know, again, just adding our honesty, since you've been kind enough to hear us and allow us to share that with you, uh, when we got to that conference, We'd already been hit with this. So we just keep picking it back up again and going for it and trying to stay very, uh, again, childlike about it all <laughs> to the best of our ability with a lot of curiosity. Well, it was just one whammy after another because I met Travis Walton and he made it very clear to me right from the beginning. He had no interest in communicating with me. And I was just I was in a state of shock because I you know, again, naive. Let me just, that's, that's what it really comes down to. Cause I hear so many people are out there that are getting support that are, and we're very happy for them. Thank the heavens. I mean, there are many people who I understand have had good work done for them. We just have not happened to be that pair. Yeah. You know, and to add to transparency with you, since you guys are being transparent, I, I commonly come across similar situations with me, you know, with my show, I'm talking to people and there's people out there that, you know, I try to reach out to that, you know, maybe their name holds some clout as far as these communities goes. And sometimes I, I, I get a response. Sometimes I don't get any response. Sometimes I get a response, but as soon as it, for me, it feels like as soon as they realize I don't have anything that is going to, help them and benefit them it, i'm right. no longer worth their time and uh it, it's a shame that people feel like they're they're only out for themselves uh and then it kind of just it permeates and, and it, it kind of it hurts and distracts people from what we're trying to really do here and it, right. just, it just festers in this community um right and so it's a sh- just human silliness yeah yeah it, it really is and and i and I'm kind of like you guys where I just, I call it childlike faith or whatever. I, I just, I don't understand why, you know, like for instance, I get a lot of emails and I, and sometimes I'm a little slow on responding to the emails because, you know, there's so many of them and I got limited time, right. but I really right. try to respond to everybody who shoots me a message on Facebook or, um, yeah. or on emails and stuff, even if it's just to say, Hey, thanks for letting me know you love the show, and I really hope you continue to enjoy it. Uh, but I try to respond to everybody because I want people to understand that I, I do care, you know. Uh, but I guess just not everybody's like that, you know. So right. Uh, wow. So well, you're a jewel. You are a jewel. <laughs> We've certainly been through the gamut. We've been very blessed to have a few jewels. And that. we certainly consider you one of them. And just, just you know, again, to state how grateful we are is putting it mildly. Well, that's the first part of a two-part show. 
Hope you guys enjoyed it. And to build some suspense for next week, here's a little montage as to what you can expect to hear on next week's show. So this is what she says happens. She claims that she's dating a guy that we knew. She invites him over to her apartment. She lived in a duplex. It's daylight. It's in the afternoon. She proceeds to tell him, I like you, but. She says he's becoming so emotionally, uh, my word, undone. that he turned into a wolf. She remembers 11 on that street corner, just like Chad and I. And the next thing she knows, it's somewhere between 3 and 4 in the morning. She's now behind the steering wheel of her moving car. The car is, seems to be somewhat driving itself as she's coming to. She ends up driving over to this guy's house. neighborhood. It's not a nice neighborhood. She walks up inside the house and she said, he looks at her and he says, either I've been or we've been waiting for you. Well, there you have it. Hopefully you guys come back and listen to the second part of the two-part show next Saturday, where we discuss with Chad and Alta more details about their experience, plus all the details of everything that their friend experienced that night once she was abducted. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Give it to me! I got this feeling, feeling. 